Hey, we've been in this series for the past couple weeks called Invitation to Wholeness. Uh, if you've joined us from there uh, in the last couple weeks, you're familiar with that. If not, and you've joined us and you're not familiar with that, I did something wrong. Uh, but we're talking about this invitation that Jesus offers all of us. Uh, in, in the first week, we, we said that we respond to Jesus' invitation when he comes and saves us. And he says, come and be a part of who, we, who I am. Uh, I've saved you. I've rescued you. I want you to be a part of my family. And so we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, the invitation that Jesus came, picked us all up off the side of the hill and said, come, I want to adopt you. I want to bring you into my family. And this is the invitation that we should respond to. Last week, we talked about the invitation to look at yourself differently. We talked about identity. How you identify yourself is key in how we live our lives. And so you are completely loved in this moment and in this moment, and in the next moment, and the next moment. And we operate from our truest identity of being loved by God, there's, and that there's nothing we can ever do uh, to remove that status from ourselves. No matter what we've done, no matter what we're about to do, no matter what we're doing currently, you are always loved. And so the invitation last week was to see yourself in that place, and then start to operate in, in life from a, from a loved posture, rather than always trying to seek attention from something else. This week, we're going to take it a step further. Uh, we talked about our invi- our, the invitation from God, how, we're, how we identify, and our wholeness that comes from Christ. This week goes a little bit further. It stretches into every aspect of our lives, this invitation that we have, and it goes most especially into our relationships. How many of you have a relationship? You all should raise your hand. Every single one of us has a relationship. Now, they might be strained, they might be difficult, uh, they might be tense, they might be thriving, but whether you, ha- whether you know it or not, you have a relationship, hopefully, with somebody. And I'm sure that uh, in this time of our, our history and what we're going through now, most of our relationships are taking on new meaning, most of them are taking on new shapes. And some of them are even more tense than they were. Some of them have more hot topics you cannot talk about with a specific person. But we need to figure out, especially now, how do we relate with each other and why do we relate with each other? So what does it look like to find the invitation and accept the invitation to move into wholeness with our relationships? Where should we begin? I answer that by saying we begin where the Bible begins. So if you have your Bibles... We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to end in Ephesians, but I'm not going to read it all. Okay, from, from the very beginning, uh, we see that we are created for relationships. In the beginning, anyone know the, the rest of words, the words? God created everything. Light, sky, land, water, mountains, trees, birds, bees, everything in between. He created weather patterns and climates. He created grass and moss, clouds and dust, everything we can see, tea as well, he created that. Everything we can see, touch, breathe, God has created. And at the end of it, what was the phrase he used? It was good. And then if you want to know the Hebrew, it's tov, tov, mahov, it was good, it was very good. But if we get to the end of day five, God's not done. On day six, And chapter 2 goes a little bit more into this. Chapter 1 is the bullet points of everything God did very quickly for your speed readers. Chapter 2 gets into the narrative. Chapter 2 tells us that on day 6, God created man. He created Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word Adam, which means mankind. 
He just happened to be called Adam. And so he created Adam that day. And, and he created him, just Adam, at that moment. And it's interesting when you look at this, because in, when, when you read Genesis, or when Genesis was read, it was always held in contrast to other creation narratives. Specifically, when you get into the Babylonian creation narratives and other things like that, uh, you kind of hold it in between and say, how is our, our creation narrative different from theirs? The first you see is the very first verse, our God hovered over the water, their gods came from the water, and so our God is higher therefore better. And so, and then you get down to the poetry, and when you see man is created in the other narratives, he's always created by himself in solitude. And then the human is supposed to find relationship with the environment. It's supposed to find relationship with animals. There's not another human listed in those. And so what you see the difference is, is God created in those places man in isolation. When you look at the Genesis narrative, it comes, it, it's, it's different. Man is created by themselves, but then all the animals and everything, it has someone to go with it. But when it gets to the man, find God looks at it and says, man's alone and everything is good. And then when it gets to here, God goes, man's in isolation. That's not good. It's the first time not good was used in scripture. This is something that's not good. There was no one there for man to relate to. There was no one there to have a relationship with. There was no one there to help him with the work. There was no one there to trust. There was no one there to debrief the day and how it went. There was no friendship. And so Adam was alone and it was not good. Everything else was good, but man living disconnected from others was not. And so when God says it's not good, he comes up with the plan. Adam was doing every day working, and he came home to being alone. And all the introverts go very quietly, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> right? It's not. Isolation is good. Isolation has its place. Solitude is good. Solitude has its place. I had to do a, uh, a long solid, I had to, I got to do a, a solitude retreat about a month, two months ago. I lasted for about 24 hours, and then I started going nuts. <laughs> I don't do well by myself. Some of y'all can go, oh, 48 hours alone? Wonderful. I, I, I can't. Uh, I have a friend that can go weeks and be fine. But it's not, solitude has its place. Isolation has its times as a discipline. Uh, but it's not meant to be our constant state. And so how, I, isolation is something that God wanted to fix. And so what's he do? He creates Eve so man wouldn't be alone. He would have someone to connect with, someone to talk with, work with, to know him, someone to help him with the chores of naming the animals, of, of taking care of the creation. There was a connection there. God made Adam and Eve because he had a relationship with them. And so the relationship with God and Adam was there. Man needed that relationship as well. So what you see from the very beginning is you have a vertical relationship between God and humans, up and down. There's also a horizontal relationship. It kind of makes the shape of a cross, if we want to look at it that way. And it has the horizontal relationship between humans and other humans. We need to have both. And as you turn the pages in Genesis and you get to chapter 3, you, you start to read that there was sin and, isolate, and sin that came into the the picture through, through the, the serpent, tempted Eve, and then they ate fruit together. Adam and Eve were both at fault. You can't blame the other. There was problems on every side. And then sin happened, and sin broke the relationship. 
And what ended up happening after that, as you turn the pages, an isolation begins to happen again. Very next chapter, chapter 4 and 5, you read about Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain was upset. He isolated himself. He grew angry and angry and angrier. And then he killed his brother. Then you read in Genesis chapter 6 how everybody did everything according to the way they wanted it to do. And they got so evil and so out of hand that there was a flood. And then you start to see broken relationship after broken relationship take place. You, we can, you can fast forward through the, through the parts of it, and you can see that there was Cain and Abel. Abraham had a tense relationship with his nephew Lot. Jacob and Esau had a tense relationship. Jacob had a tense relationship with everybody he came in contact with, if you read his story well. Jacob's sons didn't really get along with other people. They hated their younger brother, Joseph, and sold him into slavery. Moses, as he's living in Egypt 430 years later after that, has a tense relationship with some of his Egyptian co-workers, and he ends up killing one. Broken relationships happen as a result of sin. These broken and strained relationships fill the first few chapters of Scripture. And if we're honest today, we can all think of relationships that we have in our lives that are broken and strained. I can give you stories from my, my life, uh, but you might know some of those people, so we won't. But there's broken relationships all around us, so the tension is created for us as humans who are created for relationship. And the, the tension is how do we relate to others in a way that, it, that lives into the picture of wholeness that God is inviting us to. Here's the thing. God knows that we need relationships to thrive. It is not good for us to be alone, even though being alone seems like the best thing that we can do to avoid conflict, right? I don't want to make anyone mad. I'm just going to sit over in the corner and not talk to anybody. However, the key to mending the relationship is not avoidance. The key to mending the relationship is actually engagement. And this is the pattern we see in Scripture. God begins a redemption plan roughly after the sin, sin started. He begins a redemption plan. He says it's not always going to remain broken. And then he begins his plan. And then Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abraham and says, Abraham, you're going to start a family. What's a family if it's not a relationship? God's intention is to mend the universe through a relationship, through a family. He said, I'm going to give you a family that's going to grow into a nation. And then as you fast forward through Scripture again, you get back to Exodus. Everything goes back to Exodus, right? You get back to Exodus, and they're coming out of Egypt. They've been in isolation in Egypt for 432 years. And they get to the foot of Mount Sinai. They're no longer subject to, to slavery. They're learning who they are. Most importantly, they're learning who their God is. And one of the first things that God says to them is, okay, listen up. I'm going to give you ten commands, and this is how you're going to live the first four commands that you see are all vertical relationships. How, does, how do we as humans relate to God? He starts there. Your relationship with God is the first step into having a better relationship with others. And what's he say? Well, the first, he goes on. He says, you don't worship any other gods. Don't have any idols. And, and then he says, don't, don't take my name in vain. And remember the Sabbath. You were created like me in my image, and we have a Sabbath day for rest. And then the rest of the six are horizontal relationships. It's probably best if you don't kill each other. It's probably best if you don't lie. You can't have a relationship that's built on dishonesty. Don't steal. Don't covet what's not yours because that ends up in stealing and then killing and then you're back to square zero. 
And so God says, this is how we have the vertical relationship between you and me, and then the horizontal relationship between you and the person next to you. This is how we're built. And we're scared of the book of Leviticus, right? Because it's a weird, strange book. The book of Leviticus is organized in the same type of way. 15 chapters, 16 chapters about how you are supposed to relate to God, and it is weird. There's a lot of weird stuff and wild stuff in Leviticus. Maybe one day we'll read it together. But you can go through and say, wow, these first 16 is how we're supposed to worship God. Verse 17 turns the corner and says, this is how I want my worship services to go. And then the rest of the book of Leviticus, all the way to 23, 24, is how you're supposed to relate to others. Do you see the pattern? God and then yourself. Uh, Jesus picks up on this. He says, of course he would, right? He wrote this. And so Jesus picks up on this when they ask him about the law. Jesus, out of the 613 commands, which one is the most important? Where does he start? Matthew 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Which way is that? Vertical. Once you have that down, you will love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment is there. The second commandment is just as important. You will love your neighbor as yourself. That's why it summarizes the entire law. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Here's why it matters. Good, healthy, thriving relationship with others is only enabled through good, healthy, thriving relationship with God. The vertical relationship shapes and pushes us into a horizontal relationship with others. Now, when you get to the book of Ephesians, we've been in Ephesians the last uh, two weeks. Why not go back there? It's a great book. Uh, And so the book of Ephesians, Paul organizes the entire book of Ephesians in this way. He begins by saying, look how great God is. In Christ, we have all of these things. In Christ, we've been saved. We've been rescued. We've been adopted into the family of God. In Christ, you have all of this. Turn the page into chapter 2. In Christ, you have a brand new identity. You're you're loved beyond anything you could ever imagine. That's chapter 3, the end of chapter 3. More than things that you can imagine. If you think you can imagine it, make it bigger. You can't imagine this, how great the love is for you. So Paul pushes the vertical first and then gets into the horizontal We no longer, according to Paul, live in this place of relational deficit where we're trying to gain somebody else's approval. The whole point of starting with God's approval is so that you don't have to strain the relationships and find approval from other people. You've already got it. Why would you work for something you already have? And so he says, stop living out of this deficit where you're always trying to gain love and appreciation. Instead, when you start with that freedom, your relationships take on a whole new level. It becomes easier because I'm not having to rely on your opinion of what you might think of me in that particular moment. I already know what God thinks of me. And you and I are released from that burden together. And it's more than we can ever imagine. So Ephesians 4 begins like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. The first aspect Paul gets into, this is the relational half of the book. Remember who you are. Remember what you've been called to. Remember how loved you are. Now, because of that love, he gets into it. Be completely humble and gentle. Oh, boy. 
Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit. It's important that Paul mentions the Spirit here because none of us can be humble and patient and bearing with each other's love or bearing with each other's junk that we carry around and love each other unless we have the Spirit enabling us to do so. There's no way to do it on our own. The only way we can love one another is from the foundation of who we are in Christ. We operate towards others. When we operate towards others in any other foundation, the motivation will be to, re- to fill the void. When that void has already been filled, we are freed up. The first step to healthy relationships, relationship with God. The, to put it clearly, healthy relationships, the first step is to get over yourself. This is what Paul is saying. Once you have the relationship with God, next step, it's not about you. That's why he says then, be humble. Humility is not self-degrading. We have a, a distorted picture of what humility might be. Humility is this. Humility is realizing the proper view of your worth in light of your position in Christ. You have value, you have worth, yet you have limitations. And that's good. You can't do everything. I can't do everything. We can try, but I have limitations. You have limitations. Here's the great part. My limitations might be your strength. Your limitations might be her strength. And so we need each other because my strength, my weakness is your strength. Your weakness might be my strength. And so be humble. We have a proper view of who we are. And this is the foundation of our relationship. Be humble. Now, Paul uses an illustration here that we can get caught up on for a couple weeks. We won't. We'll try to breeze through it here pretty quick. He says in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. How many? One. One spirit, one Lord, one faith. One spirit, one Lord, one faith, and a bunch of people. Okay? It's not two spirits, you and you and God. It's, no, it's just God. It's God and you, or God and God, one of them, a bunch of us. So how do we get along? Paul is in essence saying, look, it's not about you. It's about the one that, we call, that we're called to follow. So get over yourself. We're all after the same goal. We all have the same indwelling spirit, and we are all in the same family. So as my dad used to say when we were driving in the road trip, going up to the lake, get along or else. And I never really understood what that else was because he never turned the car around. It was an empty threat. He didn't want to go back to Orange County when we were halfway to Lake Tahoe. He's like, get along, and he would yell at us. Uh, and then he did stop the car once, but that's a whole other story. When you see, you see this in, 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 in teams, right? If you follow sports, uh, great. If you don't, hold on, we'll get there. When a teammate is all about themselves, how good is that team? It's not very good. They're always asking for contract negotiations. They're always acti- asking for more money, more of this, more pieces of the pie. And then they're the sole focus of the team, and the rest of the team goes away. You see this in some families. When families are about one person in the family, the rest of the family is not healthy. So Paul's saying, look, it's not about you. It's about us. 
It's about how we live with each other. But Paul is also not an idiot because anytime you have two people in the room, you have three opinions. And then you start to get upset with each other and you, you, you start to rub each other the wrong way. There's going to be times in our relationships, even if we're serving out of the right reasons, uh, from the right foundation, you're not going to get along. Someone is going to step on your toes. Someone's going to look at you wrong. Someone's not going to say the exact same thing you wanted them to say at that moment, and you're going to get your feelings hurt. And the temptation that we have when that time comes, not if, when that time comes, is to move away from the way we were created. We want to move into isolation. They hurt me, so I'm going to remove myself, and I'm going to become all by myself in my apartment all day, no contact with the outside world. Because they act this way, I'm going to move myself to isolation with their animosity. I'm going to hold a grudge forever. I'll never get over this. And we isolate ourselves. We move away from each other instead of moving forward towards each other. And so verse 25, Paul says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. The Greek word for falsehood means the lie. The followers of Jesus should be known in community as honest and can be trusted. Community is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. What is truth? And John 4, uh, the truth is that we're all together as one, and following one God, one gospel, one Lord, one Savior, one Spirit. And then, and then verse 26, he says this, In your anger... So when someone does end up lying to you, when someone does end up hurting you, stepping on your toes, in your anger, don't sin. Hold on. In your anger. Does that mean if you get angry or when you get angry? When you get angry. We're going to get angry. Anger happens. It's a normal part of life. Some of you were angry looking for parking today. I get it. Some of you, I was angry this morning when I woke up and it was raining again. It's Mayuary or whatever we call it here. It's, it's just nonstop. It's, it's going to make you angry. But he says, look, anger's normal. Anger's a normal emotion we have. It's a secondary emotion, usually caused by something else. You could talk to my therapist's wife about that one. But it's, it's a secondary emotion. It's caused by usually hurt or you've been, you've been bothered by something and you get angry. Paul says, in your anger, though don't sin. So it's possible to be angry and not sin. Well, of course, God was angry. He's not anymore. Don't worry. Jesus got angry. I get angry. You get angry. We all get angry. But in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not let the devil get a foothold. Anger happens. The caution there is don't stay angry. Now, this is where the biblical literists start to go really crazy here, and they'll say, you can't go to sleep until your anger is resolved. Um, maybe not. Because sometimes when you're angry, the best thing you need is a nap. And then you'll wake up and your anger is gone. So it's not saying that you can't get angry at night. You, can't get ang you can only get angry when it's, uh, when it's sunlight outside. That means that the people who live in the northern part of this world are angry all the time because the sun never goes down. And then when it's winter here, they're never angry at all. That's not how it works. 
Paul's saying, don't let that anger stir in you. Don't let it stay. Don't let it sour you. Because when it sours you, what do you do? You separate. You isolate. And then the warning there is you've given Satan a foothold. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, we, when, in, in our house, when I usually do something and, and we have a discussion, uh, it's best that I don't have that discussion after 10 p.m. After 10 p.m., I will say things that I shouldn't say things, and I will have emotions that I should never have, and then the anger gets perpetuated, and I say stupid stuff, and then we're more mad. There's times where you got to go, time out. We're going to come back to this. We're not going to let it sit there and drive this wedge between us. We're going to come back to it. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sometimes space is good. Last warning that he gives us about this is the warning I want to hone in on here. We get angry. We let it sit down in our soul, and then it begins to make us cynical. It drives wedges between us and other people, and then we begin to isolate. And this is why Paul says in verse 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. How did the devil split up Adam and Eve? Isolation. Eve was by herself, all alone. Adam came back. Adam sinned. And then what happened after that? They separated. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, they were together. There was no animosity between the two of them. The, the text says that they were naked and unashamed, and they were running through the garden like you would if you were naked and unashamed. And they're doing that, and everything's great. Sin enters the world. They start hiding. The next thing you see is anger takes place. The hurt stays there. The blame game starts to happen. What's Adam say? It's her fault. The animosity has driven a wedge between the two of them. Our anger, our animosity, our grudge holding gives Satan a place where he can get his foot in to get more chances to attack us. Don't give the devil a foothold. So Satan lurks around, around angry people in the hopes of exploiting the situation to turn their anger into hatred or violence, which will break up the church It'll break up vital relationships that we have that we need in order to thrive. First Peter 5 tells us this about Satan. He says, be alert, be of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he exists, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And it's an interesting verse if you think about it. There's a lot of imagery there. It's, it's this lion on the prowl. And I, I tend to think about it a lot. So I find myself watching the Discovery Channel when I think of this. And they have this thing, Discovery Planet. And they show these lions chasing animals through, through like the Saharan Desert. And it's fascinating. And I have to tell my, my boys, it's okay. This is the circle of life. And then I sing them the song. And this is how it's supposed to happen. But they'll, they'll start, they start in a pack, and at least the one I watched. And these lions are maneuvering around these gazelles. And they're just pushing the pack around, and what they're doing is they're finding the weak one, and then the weak one can't keep up with the other ones, and then that one is set apart, and it's isolated. If it stayed with the herd, it would have been safe in the numbers, but instead, it's all by itself, and what is it now? Dinner, and it, then the lions pounce, 
This show showed how the lions prowl and they prey as a team. And this is the image I get when I read this. Satan is roaring around looking to see who he can thin off from the herd in order to pounce on them and devour them. And when they're finally exhausted from running, it's almost like the gazelle gives up and says, fine, eat me. This is where we're at. For the lions, it's way easier to go for the singled out one rather than the entire herd. For the gazelle with no, no protection, they have no hope. Peter says Satan roars around for someone to devour. And that word devour is a fun word to look at. It either means swallow them with one gulp or little by little, one bite at a time until they're gone. How does your anger work? It starts here, and then little by little you get more and more angry and more and more ticked off about something someone did or said, and then pretty soon your life is like a matchbox just waiting for a spark, right? You hear something on the radio, and then boom, you're lit, and you're mad, and now you're isolated, and now Satan's foothold has turned into an entire, entire fortress. So Peter says, be careful. Don't give him an opportunity to separate you. Little by little is more likely for us than an entire gulp. Little by little, we pull away from each other. Little by little, we start feeding the seeds of separation, division, disagreement. Little by little, our pride kicks in. Little by little, the foothold is established. And soon, little by little, turns into an entire gulp. And then we're gone, separated, isolated, attacked, devoured. When you read the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis, uh, Cain, right before Cain killed Abel, there's this interesting conversation. God talks to Cain and says, hey, why are you so mad? And Cain says, he gets all the attention. You took his sacrifice and not mine. And what do you have here? Cain's pride's hurt. Pride, hurt, is the root of anger. The, the hurt is the primary emotion. Anger comes from that, that hurt. And now Cain is about ready to do something he's going to regret. And what, God, what does God say? Hey, buddy, be careful. This is Brad's translation. Hey, dude, um, sin is crouching at your door. Don't give in to it. Don't step on it. And for many of us, sin is crouching on our door when it comes to our animosity when it comes to our bitterness, when it comes to our rage. Don't give in to it. In other words, what, what God is saying to Cain is, hey, it's at your doorstep, and you're about to invite it in for a drink. It's about to be a part of you. Satan uses our anger, our rage, our annoyance to destroy our relationships, and we see this tactic everywhere within the church and it's reaping havoc and destroying communities it's destroying families it's destroying people's faith and ultimately people's lives our anger crouches and then it springs and it sends us into isolation which leads to broken relationships and so we need to together work through our anger work through the places that we've been hurt it means having a hard conversation with that one person and talking about it, working through the animosity, working through the differences together, not on our own, 
Not in our own place. Not, I have arguments in the shower all the time. I win them all. That's not the best place. You need to have that conversation with the other person. I'm going through a list of these right now in my life where, where over these past three years, there's been hurt. And it's not instantly fixed. There's times, and it takes time, and it's painful. And there's areas where I've done wrong. There's areas where I've been wrong. And we have to get in the same room, seek God together, because our relationship is much more valuable than the opinion we disagree on. This continued isolation that we have has become such a, a, a part of our church culture that what happens is someone gets upset at something that was said in the church, and then they separate And then we have this whole other movement that has been going on for centuries, it's nothing new, called deconstruction. We heard of it? Oh, so-and-so's deconstructing. Oh, it's great. That seems normal. But what happens, or what has happened in the past, is usually we deconstruct before these past two years with a community around us. Deconstruction's good. It means that you're, you're questioning your faith. It means that you're asking important questions. It means that you're growing deeper. You're trying to figure out who God is for you, and that's wonderful. When we do that in community, it's even better. So right after I started seminary, I had my deconstruction moment. I looked at the theology that I've been working on for my whole bachelor's degree and went, this doesn't work. And had I gotten so mad at this and separated from everything in the community, I don't think I would be here. I don't think I'd be following God anymore. But what did I do? I took it to my small group, to my cohort in seminary and said, guys, I'm asking questions about everything. And our professor looked at us and went, great. Do it in community. Tie yourself to people who are ahead of you. Why? Because my limitations and understanding are someone else's strength. I can seek help. I can get to know God on my terms. I can get to know the scriptures and begin to realize that I don't really need to separate. I just need to do the work in community. Right now, we deconstruct in isolation. We pull away. And when we're in isolation, your questions become bigger than they really ought to be. You start to lose focus on what the, what the focus should be. You, you lose focus on who God is, what Jesus has done, and you start to have this endless cycle of questions, and you have no one to ask the question to. And that's when it becomes dangerous. And then the new deconstruction always ends up likely by a, some Instagram influencer influencing you to pull away from the entire church. If it's not an influencer, it's a book or it's a a sermon that you heard that you disagreed with. And what happens, you're separated, you're isolated, then you're devoured. Deconstruction's good. I encourage you all to do it at some point, but deconstruct within the relation of community. Because the same trick that Satan used on Eve, the same trick that he used on Cain and Abel is the same trick that he's going to use on you. He's kind of run out of new tricks a long time ago. It's the only trick he has. So when we thrive in our relationship with God, we're drawn together with the people around us. We're not isolated from others. Then we can deconstruct. We can ask the questions, but it's done in the context of relationship. This is why we're called to be in relationship. Not only do we need it, it's vital for your faith and your protection so Satan doesn't get a foothold in you. We're invited to connect. 
We're invited to surround ourselves. We're invited to engage. And that's the opposite from everything Satan wants us to do. Isolate, separate, and devoured. I don't know, maybe someone has been holding you back from in going into a relationship. Maybe uh, coming back to this new version of normal has been more painful than you thought it would be. The invitation for you today is to take that single step. Now, it can't all be fixed in one conversation, but it can begin with one conversation. Perhaps you're angry, perhaps you're hurt, perhaps you're bothered. The last time you took that step, you got your hand slapped again, and perhaps you need to heal. Don't heal by yourself. Heal in relationship. Find a person you know and you trust that you can process with. Someone who will understand you, someone who will emphasize with you, someone who will challenge you to not disengage. Connect with God. Surround yourself with community and engage. The hard work is having that conversation. But here's what I've noticed. When at 10 p.m. when I say something stupid and there's more of a division between my wife and I, and then the next morning we have a chance to talk about it, what I find is when we start to, when we begin to talk and we figure out, oh, that's why you're upset. I did that. I'm sorry. And then she says, oh, I did this. That's why you're this way. Yeah, it was a total misunderstanding. I, I apologize. What happens after that? Our relationship is closer. It happens with, with spouses. It happens with friends. There's misunderstandings that happen. And when you allow your anger not to heal the relationship between you and the other, you are going to separate, you'll be isolated, and you'll be devoured. Matthew 18 gives us a great image on how we're supposed to solve this. It says, go to the person directly who's offended you. Go to them. You bothered me. Here's why. I don't know why you would bother me, Nathan, but we'll just go with this. And then we're going to talk about it. Great. Now that we've cleared the air, he and I know how we can navigate our relationship together and become closer and push us towards a relationship with God. Our horizontal could then push the vertical. If I do this, Dan, did you hear what Nathan did? What a jerk. He's not a jerk. He's a nice guy. What does that do? Now Dan's against him, and now there's more division. And then Dan will go, hey, Jeremy, did you hear what happened there? Oh, now there's three against one. And now we have separation within the body, and what happens when you're separated? You're isolated. The whole church is devoured. See how that works? Matthew 18 says, go to the person directly. Don't let Satan give you a foothold. Take care of it. Then, if something's going on here that we, he and I can't fix for some odd reason, take someone with you. Get a third party. Because you're both being stubborn at this moment. And you need someone with a clear head who can help you navigate the relationship. And then you have saved your brother or sister. Our relationships are what we were created for. However, in this time, our relationships are strained. And we need to figure out a way to talk to each other in a way that doesn't breed more and more anger, animosity, separation, isolation, and then a big gulp at the end of it. So this morning, 
uh, you're invited, all of us here are invited to take the first step towards mending a broken relationship in our lives. If you can't think of one now, just give it a minute. There's some out there. We all have them. Some of you have a, the little invitation card that we gave out. Some of you don't have one. Maybe you can think of it in your mind. Yeah, I need to start mending a relationship with so-and-so because this isn't how we were created to live. Who is that person for you today? Who's the person that, want, that you want to isolate from, separate from, point fingers, share stories, divide? What would it look like for you this morning to begin the step towards mending that relationship? Is it an email? Is it a text message? Heaven forbid we actually use our phones to call somebody. Maybe it's a phone call. Is it a coffee in a public place where things won't get thrown? What is it going to take for you to take that first step towards wholeness in your relationship? Maybe you need to seek the advice of a counselor for help. That's great. Do that. Maybe it's something that you bring a friend with. Process, advice, safety. Who's the broken relationship that you need to mend with? Uh, we serve communion every morning over here, and, uh, or every Sunday morning. And uh, Jesus gives a, a, a thing of uh, relationships when he talks about coming together. He says, if there's any kind of animosity between you and another, fix it, and then come to the table. Because you don't want the horizontal relationship to bust up the vertical relationship. Take the step to fix it. So this morning, I encourage you, what's the first step? I want to fix this. Once you've identified the first step and you've committed to actually taking that first step, go to the vertical part over here, the communion, and say, Lord, I'm going to need your help. That's the only way that we can have relationships with each other. And then you'll live like you were created to live. Would you pray with me? Father, you didn't make us in isolation. That wasn't good. But you put us with a bunch of people that sometimes are pretty hard to get along with. And we're all in that same boat because we all do things that make us pretty hard to get along with at times. And so God, as we accept your invitation to wholeness, give us the courage to examine what our relationships look like. You say that you will, they will know who we are as Christians, as believers, as followers of you through the love that we have for one another. And to be honest, right now, it doesn't look like a lot of love. so God would we have the courage that only comes from you only comes from our vertical relationship with you to take the step towards the horizontal so would you help us identify those broken places would you help us identify those broken relationships and then one simple step to move towards restoration perhaps it's as simple as I'm going to forgive them today not going to hold them responsible. As 
doesn't mean I'm going to hang out with them tomorrow, but I'm not going to be mad at them anymore. Perhaps it's setting down our own anger, getting our pride out of the way, being humble, that you loved us in the middle of our mess and we can love them in the middle of theirs. God, would you heal relationships this morning? Would you bring a tight-knit community of Jesus followers who are known by love and known by a great relationship that starts a family and you've used families to save the world? May we take part in that today. It's in your name we ask. Amen. When you're ready, communion's available over here.